Welcome everybody. Today is Tuesday, December 15th. And on Tuesdays, we usually have Mr. Dwaskin. So Mr. Dwaskin, the floor is yours. Hi, Angela. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Thank you, Angela. Um, welcome to our, um, our current events class for today. Uh, the subject that I picked is one which is uh, very, very current, uh, very, very hot. And that is the discussion about Brexit. And so in order to explain what this is all about and for everyone to understand kind of what are the um, sticking points and what are the considerations in this whole process, uh, it's a good idea to go back and see the whole historical background of this whole uh, movement. So just very, very briefly to explain uh, the word Brexit comes from the combination of the two words British and exit. So the British and exit makes Brexit, and the exit is from the European Union. So before we get into what the European Union is and why Great Britain joined it, um, I just wanted to go back a little bit just to do a touch, sort of a light brushing of history to understand how things have changed over the last uh, many centuries. Um, so in general, uh, we could say that we go back to the 1500s, that, that century was dominated by Spain. In the 1600s, that century was dominated by Holland and Portugal. In the 1700s, it was Britain and France. In 1800s, it was Britain itself, up until the First World War. And after that, it's been the US. So there was a time, a very long time, when Great Britain was not only the richest country in the world, but also the most powerful country in the world, and the country which uh, many of us remember our school days, uh, had colonies ranging all around the world. Like they said, the sun never set on the British Empire. And the color red was marked on the maps where Canada and Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, uh, most of Africa, uh, East Africa, um, you know, into Asia, Hong Kong, um, India, what would, is now India, Pakistan, Myanmar, uh, Sri Lanka, all of these places, including even parts of South America, British Honduras and all the Caribbean islands, the British ones. So all this is part of a great British empire and this empire fed money into the home country. So uh, Britain benefited from the trade they benefited from having a kind of a guaranteed market for industrial goods produced in Great Britain. The Industrial Revolution started in Great Britain in the early 1800s, the first uh, revolution that used machines to um, do the work that men used to do. And so the Industrial Revolution combined with that huge uh, base of colonies made Britain during the 1800s the number one country in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, the British mentality kind of, uh, um, you know, took this for granted, we'll say. Uh, democracy, of course, made slow and steady advances in Great Britain to make it into a democratic country. Um, but it took a long time for Britain to sort of shake off this idea that they are the, the, the dominant power in the world. And uh, really, it was the Second World War, uh, well, both world, both world wars, 
but especially the Second World War, which kind of marked the, um, the changeover from Britain being a world power to Britain being a kind of a medium power. Um, after the Second World War, Britain gave up practically all of its possessions, especially in Asia, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Myanmar became independent. Um, their work in the Middle East, the mandate in Palestine ended. Uh, in the 1960s, Britain gave independence to its um, colonies in the West Indies. And uh, starting in 1958 in Africa with Ghana, and so by the end of the 1960s, then, Britain was kind of a shadow in a way of its former self as far as a world power is concerned. They did uh, get to keep uh, or had a the, uh, permanent seat on the Security Council of the United Nations, one of the five countries. So that sort of recognized Britain as a kind of a world international power. But the status that they had sort of politically didn't exactly match the status that they had economically. So, um, you know, things got rough in Great Britain, especially uh, after the Second World War, having to rebuild the country. Um, there was periods of shortages, there were periods of rationing. And um, Britain had, took a long time to sort of build themselves back up again. Um, Uh, the world started to change a lot in the 1960s and 70s. And uh, one of the big changes was that in the Far East, economic powers emerged like Japan and Korea, which had not been there before. And um, sort of in an answer to this upcoming uh, Far Eastern power, um, the European countries began to think of themselves more uh, that it would be better for them to be an economic unit. The roots of the European Union that we know today is a kind of an economic union of 28 countries. That European Union really began in the very early 50s when it was decided to um, make a tariff-free zone for only coal and steel. So that was the very beginning, 1951, the uh, European Coal and Steel uh, Associate Union, I think it was called. And from there, ideas came about to expand this, um, uh, this e economic union to, to make a sort of a free trade zone in Europe. And things just sort of snowballed from there. The first six countries forming the common market were Belgium, Holland, uh, Luxembourg, France, Germany, and Italy. And one of the reasons that they did decide to do this was because the Soviet Union was uh, a strong power in Eastern Europe. And they figured that if they had sort of a united economy, they would be able to, uh, we'll say, to uh, put up a solid front in case the Soviet Union tried to encroach on Western Europe. And that, that union of six countries was the beginning. It was a common market. It was only for trade in goods. There wasn't any other parts of it. There wasn't a citizenship part. There wasn't a free travel part. There wasn't a um, uh, exchange of, uh, uh, there wasn't a kind of a European parliament. 
there wasn't um, a common currency, the euro. Uh, it was just a common market that started that way. And the success of this market led to all the changes that I just mentioned just, just now. Um, so that gradually uh, they expanded to all the countries that they have now. They adopted a common currency called the euro. Um, this euro currency was backed by the uh, financial power of the European countries that were in the euro. <clears throat> they didn't make it compulsory for a European country joining the European Union to actually give up its own money. But a lot of countries in the European Union said, you know, it's better to have one currency because that currency would be traded easily all around the world. We don't have to change money if we are traveling or trading from one country to another, you know, to change francs to kroners to, to pesetas to escudos. You know, if we all had one currency, it would make things so much simpler. So most of the countries in the European Union uh, adopted that euro, and some countries didn't. Uh, Sweden didn't, and Denmark didn't, uh, and eventually Great Britain didn't either. Great Britain was interested in joining up with this European Union in the 1960s, but there was a problem. And the problem was there was one country that didn't like them, and that was France. France led by Charles de Gaulle. Charles de Gaulle, of course, was uh, somebody who had a chip on his shoulder. He felt that, um, you know, uh, uh, in a way that France was embarrassed by its, its, its um, loss in the Second World War. He felt embarrassed that the, the French, the free French government had to, had to be uh, uh, located in Great Britain. And, um, you know, he was the kind of person who just didn't like anyone besides French people, and he sure didn't like Great Britain. So all, all the time that he was in office, he, he vetoed the idea of Great Britain joining up with the European Union. After he passed uh, from uh, political office in the late 60s, uh, Great Britain in 1973 decided to join the uh, European Union. And... Uh, you know, there's advantages and disadvantages to joining up with a big group, a group that's much bigger than you. You have to abide by the rules of the group. You lose independence um, to do things exactly how you like. But at the same time, you're part of a bigger economy, a stronger economy, uh, a more stable economy, and um, a more secure economy. And these were the uh, calculations that were made in Great Britain. They said, look, uh, our colonies are gone. Our guaranteed markets are gone all around the world. We are a kind of a middle power. Uh, we have the US on one hand and Japan on the other hand. And um, you know, if we join up with the European Union, it will make Europe into a stronger and better place. The British thought of it much more of, as an economic association than they did a, a political association. There were people in Europe, including the founder of the uh, European Union, uh, who felt that one day um, there would be something like the United States of Europe, that the economic uh, union was just a kind of a precursor to Europe uniting as one single country, which of course never came to pass. 
Um, but the um, uh, British never bought into that idea. They bought into the idea that Great Britain would be um, part of an economic union. They would never give up the British pound as a currency because they didn't trust the spendthrift Europeans. Um, one of the sort of philosophies of the European common market was that the wealthier countries would help out the poorer ones. And so the wealthier countries in Europe, meaning Germany, Holland, Belgium, Sweden, um, had to give economic help to the poorer ones, Spain, Portugal, Greece, um, yeah, those ones, and, and Italy to some degree. And Great Britain felt, well, okay, you know, we're putting more into the European Union than we're getting out of it, but it, 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 it pays in the long run. And that was the, that was the sort of a calculation. Um, um, so the economic uh, sort of results of the European Union have been a great success. Of course, you can't really measure, you can't do a scientific, a scientific study to say what would have happened had the European countries didn't unite because, you know, obviously you can't do that type of experiment. But overall, the European Union proved to be quite a success. It was a success economically. The, the European Union is the se second biggest economy in the world after the United States. Um, it's the third largest. If, if the European Union was one country, were one country, it would be the third biggest country in the world after... Um, China and India. Um, any of the sort of disagreements that happened within the European Union were kept to a minimum. Uh, there hasn't been a war in Europe, uh, in Western Europe since 1945. Uh, you know, we take for granted the stability that the European Union gave to its membership. And uh, that stability was important to to uh, you know, help Europe progress in tough times. Um, there was more trade, more jobs, uh, the same standards apply, the same sort of weights and measures, the same everything. The European Union had to set up some sort of bureaucracy in Brussels to sort of administer the union and set up com uh, common rules for everything. And some people in Great Britain felt that uh, all of these rules and red tape were obstacles to development. But, you know, you need to have some sort of uh, rules. Uh, the political nature of the European Union developed when they decided to have a European Parliament, to have elections to this European Parliament. The European Parliament is headquartered in Strasbourg in France. Uh, but the powers that the European uh, Parliament have can always be overridden by the national parliaments. And so it's much more of a kind of a symbolic um, union than it is an actual political union. Um, and Great Britain, like all the other members, have participated in elections uh, to this uh, European parliament. Um, another big feature of the uh, sort of uh, later version of the European Union was this sort of a visa-free travel between countries. 
And once you're a citizen of the European Union, you've got a European passport. You've seen it, uh, you know, with this, all these little stars in the circle. And that allowed you to travel completely visa-free from one country to another by land, by air, any way you wanted. It gave, uh, importantly, people the right to study in other countries visa-free. It gave them the right to work in other countries. So, for example, if we talk about Great Britain, um, many uh, people from Eastern Europe, uh, like Poland, uh, came to work in Great Britain every year. Sometimes they went home, sometimes they didn't go home. Uh, they had a right to settle in the European Union countries. No one was allowed to say, oh, you can't live here. An Italian is allowed to move to Germany. Um, you know, a Spanish, a, great, a British person is allowed to move to Spain. Um, and, and it just led to a free um, interchange of people, uh, you know, uh, each looking after their own uh, sort of uh, needs and, 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 um, and desires. So it was really not only an economic union, but as it developed, it was a sort of people union. And, um, you know, Europe, there isn't probably any uh, person in Europe who hasn't traveled to another European country. Uh, and all on domestic flights, as you guys all know, the, the flights in Europe were, you know, as low as $35. It was like taking a bus uh, with the cheaper airlines to go from one city in Europe to another. And so this union, this union um, the visa union and the currency union made it easy to travel from one place to another. It was just like uh, a domestic flight here uh, or in the United States. Um, the um, uh, fact that there were some richer countries and some poorer countries meant that it was possible for the richer countries to open up, say, uh, lower skilled um, businesses or offices or plants in the poorer countries to take advantage of the lower wages. And, um, you know, that way these lower, these countries could get jobs, which they would not have under normal circumstances. On the other hand, some of the disadvantages were that if a country, uh, say a poorer country, um, is using the euro as their currency, the value of euro is very high. And so when these countries um, uh, had to buy things, they had to buy things in a valuable currency and that pushed in a way, even though if their wages are low, uh, it means that things become more costly than if they were able to have their own currency and devalue it every time they, they ran into trouble. Um, but the poorer countries like Spain and Portugal and, and, and Greece wanted to have a strong currency because it sort of took the, it made them disciplined. It took the, the, the easy way out away from their governments and, and you know, they had to use the discipline uh, to keep their economies in check. So there were rules which applied to Great Britain too that said that no country in the European Union was allowed to spend more than um, a dollar for every 97 cents it collected. Or they weren't allowed to spend more than a dollar three for every dollar they collected in taxes. So that, that was the discipline. You know, you couldn't go on a kind of a wild spending spree if you didn't have the money. Uh, which you could do if you were independent, but you know, in the European Union, you weren't independent. So this discipline worked out well uh, in the end. 
Um, <clears throat> now, the other point about the European Union, uh, like I said, was that the richer countries had to help the poorer countries. And so countries like Great Britain were obliged to pour money into the European Union, and that money would be then used to build uh, infrastructure, uh, hospitals, roads, bridges in the poorer countries uh, like Greece and Italy and, and um, Spain and Portugal. Needless to say, a lot of this money was wasted and, and kind of uh, diverted. Uh, the richer countries were resentful about this, but they all sort of said, well, it's a price to pay to keep our poor uh, you know, members uh, satisfied in the European Union. So Great Britain did have a budget to, to, to spend on that. Um, one of the uh, sort of principles of the European Union was that agriculture was supposed to be subsidized. And, um, you know, uh, because the so-called farmer is the romantic hero of Europe, and the British farmers were subsidized by the European Union budget as well, even though, uh, you know, money went from Britain into the European Union budget and some of it came back to help British farmers and of course help uh, French farmers and Italian farmers and every other farmer that you could imagine. Um, uh, there was also, uh, besides the free movement of people, there was a sort of a, uh, free movement in a way of pensions and healthcare. You could get healthcare wherever you wanted in Europe. Um, you know, if you had a pension from Great Britain, it could be paid in Spain while you sit, sat in your villa by the sea or Portugal. And many British people did, did all of that. Mm. Um, now, uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher, the sort of powerful uh, Prime Minister of Great Britain, she felt that joining the economic, the 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 the, the, the joining the European Union was a good idea. So she was in favor of it, but she wasn't in favor of of sort of the the political cost of joining the European Union. Um, and um, even though the even though the Britain joined in 1973, by 1993 there was a political party in Great Britain called the UKIP, UKIP, the United Kingdom Independence Party, which wanted to get Britain out of the European Union. And what they were thinking was that they didn't want Great Britain to become assimilated into the European Union. They didn't want the European Union courts to have power over Great Britain. They didn't want uh, Great Britain to adopt the standards of the rest of the European Union. Some of the uh, rules and regulations were quite uh, obscure that Britain had to follow, you know, the sizes of containers and the shape of bottles and all kinds of sort of uh, little things like that um, got people upset. Um, in um, the uh, elections which were held in the European Union, this United Kingdom Independence Party uh, came, did very well. Uh, so uh, the election of, let me see here, 2014, they came in first place in the U European Parliament. And in the British national elections in 2015, the United 
Kingdom Independence Party actually got 13% of the vote. And so that got the Conservative Party frightened in Great Britain. They said, you know, if we don't do anything to sort of stop this movement, we, we could end up losing elections to a party uh, which is to the right of us and which wants to take Great Britain out of the European Union. And so in 2015, the, the, the Prime Minister Cameron, David Cameron, promised that there would be a referendum if he were elected to, um, to be the prime minister. And the referendum would allow the British people to, de to decide if they wanted to stay in the European U Union or get out. At that time, the, all the major parties in, in Great Britain wanted to stay in the European Union, which means the Conservative Party, the Labour Party, the Liberal Democratic Party, the Scottish Nationalist Party, they all wanted to stay. And so they sort of figured that calling a referendum would sort of let steam out of the British population. There was a referendum to join the European Union uh, back, uh, back uh, in the 19, uh, let me see what this was. Uh, I can't remember the date exactly. But there was 67% support for Great Britain to join the European Union, and that's how they joined. Um, what what uh, David Cameron promised the people was that he would negotiate changes in the European Union um, if, the, if Great Britain voted to stay in the Union. And what the changes, what he wanted to do was to was to protect the single market of the European Union from non-Euro countries, to lessen the red tape, to restrict immigration from the European Union. In other words, the, this freedom of movement of people was fine for within the European Union. But uh, as you all may remember, one of the big crises of the mid 2000s was the arrival of refugees into Europe from the Muslim world refugees from Afghanistan, refugees from Syria, especially refugees from Iraq, refugees from um, Black Africa, refugees from Libya, um, any war-torn part of the world, and especially the Muslim world, were sending refugees into the European Union by the hundreds of thousands. And um, these refugees were sort of desperate to get out of their countries. They moved into Europe and it caused a crisis in Europe. How do, does Europe deal with this whole flood of refugees? What the European Union decided was to sort of parcel them out or share them out and have each country take some, with Germany taking the most. And Great Britain, a lot of people in Great Britain didn't like the idea that Britain would be forced to take a share of European refugees. And that the refugee crisis was the, I would say, the turning point or the cause of Great Britain voting eventually to leave the European Union. It wasn't an economic crisis. It wasn't an idea that Great Britain felt that economically they'd be better off outside of Europe. It was really the refugee crisis and the sort of uncontrolled um, movement of non-European people into Europe, which frightened 
British voters and frightened the British people to thinking that they would be overrun by Muslims um, at some point or other. And the far, if they could cut that tie between the continent and the island of Great Britain, they could sort of take up that bridge that maybe they'd be safe in that way. Of course, we all know that uh, there was uh, an underground bridge that was built to join um, Great Britain to France called the, uh, the, the channel, uh, the uh, channel, the tunnel underneath the English channel. So they called it the channel. And that's a land bridge. That's a bridge, it's a road, it's a railway, uh, which you know physically joins Great Britain to France. So that's one sort of uh, union point. The other union point is a, the Irish border. So Ireland decided to become part of the European Union. And um, uh, so there is a land border now between Great Britain on the one hand and Ireland on the other hand. So there's kind of two, almost two land borders, we'll call it. Um, so he, uh, to go back to Cameron, he, he, uh, he promised that he would make changes in the European arrangement. Polls were showing support for a continued membership, but, uh, but there was a lot of opposition to Great Britain granting benefits, social benefits and economic benefits to non-EU citizens. Um, and the fear was again, that if these people would end up pouring into Great Britain, that Great Britain would have to be offering them uh, welfare payments, uh, education payments, health payments. And it sort of turned all of Great Britain sour, not only against non-EU citizens, but against the EU itself. Um, there was a movement from uh, people from Eastern Europe uh, like, for example, uh, Poland and Lithuania, who came into Great Britain to do, do work. Um, and many of the British people felt that they were taking jobs away from British you know, citizens themselves, that these were foreigners and speaking foreign languages, and um, especially in parts of Great Britain which had suffered deindustrialization and poverty. All of a sudden, to see these these Eastern Europeans showing up in their towns made uh, the poorest of British people afraid that they were going to be replaced by these foreigners, and um, and this is what happened in 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 the the twenty sixteen referendum was held. The referendum was a very fair referendum compared to ours that we've had here in, in Quebec in two times. Uh, the question was, should the um, Great Britain stay in Europe or leave Europe? A very simple question, unbiased question. The, the running of the referendum was done by neutral, uh, neutral parties. And um, like I said, the Conservatives, the Labour Party, the Liberal Democratic Party and the Scottish Nationalist Party all supported staying in the European Union. And only the United Kingdom Independence Party said, no, we should leave. And shock of shocks, the results were 51.9% to leave and 48.1% to stay. Um, with a 72% turnout, which is a very respectable number for a turnout. Uh, the final figures that I was just reading this morning on the American election was that the, um, despite all the huge interest in the election and all the publicity and the 
billions of dollars of advertising, the turnout rate in the US election was only 67%. So think of that. Uh, and the, uh, the referendum in the UK was 72% turnout. So how did the, you know, how did the vote split up? Um, as it, as it show, as it turns out, the United Kingdom, as you, as you will digress a little bit, the United Kingdom is made up of four nations, uh, which are England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. England and Wales joined together in the 1200s. Um, and Scotland joined this union, uh, the United Kingdom in 1700, 1707, in order to sort of, to, let's say, take advantage of the great colonial expansion that was happening in uh, Great Britain that I was talking about before. Um, you know, the, practically the conquering of the whole world by Great Britain. So Scotland joined in 1707. And Northern Ireland joined in 1921 when there was another referendum in Ireland and the parts of Ireland that voted for independence became independent. The parts of Ireland that didn't vote in for independence stayed with Great Britain and became Northern Ireland, part of the four nations. Um, you know, that, that referendum is a whole other uh, subject but uh, the Irish people felt that since most of Ireland joined, voted for independence, that all of Ireland should have become independent. And Great Britain decided in 1921 that those parts that wanted to stay loyal to Great Britain should separate from Ireland and become part of Great, well, to, to remain in Great Britain as uh, Northern Ireland. Um, you know, that's subject for, that, for another, another discussion, maybe. Uh, there's also some smaller places in and around the British Isles, like the uh, Channel Islands and the Isle of Man, uh, which are uh, sort of independent part of the United Kingdom, but independent from the United Kingdom at the same time. These are smaller um, and places that are, are associated with Great Britain, but yet are independent in, in from Great Britain uh, itself. Um, now, Scotland and Northern Ireland voted in the referendum to stay, and England and Wales voted to leave. Uh, <clears throat> Northern Ireland voted to stay, partly because they are attached to the Ireland itself, the country Ireland, and they didn't want any kind of border to, um, you know, to divide the two places. Scotland uh, said they, they saw themselves in Scotland as Europeans um, just as much as they saw, saw, thought of themselves as, as being British. And um, uh, England, uh, and Wales voted more for independent for independence than um, uh, than for uh, staying in the European Union. The city of London uh, and its environs uh, voted to stay, and uh, all the rest of Great of England, uh, not all the rest, but most of the rest of England voted to leave. The poorer places voted to leave and the wealthier places voted to stay in, in Europe. And that was the division. 
So it was kind of, you know, if you wanted to compare it to the United States, you would say that the Rust Belt, um, the, the sort of Trump type people were the ones who voted to uh, leave Great Britain and the cosmopolitan educated cities voted to stay in the, in the European Union. That's how the vote split up. But it ended up to be 52 to 48, not an enormous um, proportion. And the, um, I think uh, Mr. Cameron was so confident that he would win that he didn't make a higher bar, like saying 60% was required to, to leave Europe because Great Britain had been in, in Europe by then for 47 years in the European Union. And to just sort of with a tiny majority uh, to leave and shake up this whole, um, you know, existence that Britain had lived under was, was a very low bar. Uh, and it was unexpected. Um, but he said, we will respect the um, results of the referendum and start negotiations to leave. And that was not a very easy thing to do. Um, um, also, the older voters voted to, to leave and the younger voters voted to stay. Um, among minorities like black and Asian people of which there are you know, millions in Great Britain, they voted to stay. Uh, and you know, the social conservatives voted to leave. That was the way things uh, sort of shook out as a result of this referendum. Um, the, the people who voted to leave were promised that um, Great Britain would be independent, that it would be able to regain its, its kind of world status if they were not chained to Europe. They would have control over immigration. And this was the main the main thrust of this vote, as I said, was had to do with immigration and didn't have to do with uh, the economy itself. Um, they felt that uh, they'd be able to you know, make their own laws and control their own future and not be tied to whatever happens in Europe. Um, the people who voted to remain were the ones who were concerned about the economy. And they said that uh, Great Britain was sort of one of the anchors of Europe, uh, that Great Britain benefited from free trade with Europe, that Great Britain ended up being kind of the financial capital of Europe. Um, uh, many of the head offices uh, uh, established themselves in Europe, in, in England, in Great Britain, so that they could operate in English and yet they could service the whole uh, of the European continent that way. Insurance companies, banks, uh, airlines, anything to do with sort of, um, you know, pan-European business were found it convenient to establish themselves in London. And this especially went for American companies who wanted to expand into Europe found it convenient to sort of um, headquarter in London uh, because they could operate in English and yet service, um, you know, uh, Europe as a whole. Uh, and even far East Asian uh, countries who were, you know, uh, used to working in English felt in a way the same way. Um, 
the uh, the um, so the negotiations took a long time to figure out how to break this link. Uh, David Cameron was replaced by Theresa May, who was a much stronger uh, supporter of Great Britain leaving, because Cameron was a supporter of Great Britain staying. So the Conservative Party changed leadership, and Theresa May. Uh, formalized this exit uh, from uh, the European Union, and they gave themselves a two-year period to negotiate uh, this exit. The negotiations took time. Uh, the two sides were not able to come to agreement on all the details. Uh, sort of, um, Theresa May wanted to um, um, have her cake and eat it, you could say, to keep the benefits of being in European Union, but lose the responsibilities. Uh, they wanted to um, not to end the free movement of people, to end the European Court of Justice as being the final sort of arbiter. Uh, they wanted to maintain free travel in with Ireland, um, and the European Union, on the other hand, wanted Euro uh, Great Britain to pay for this divorce. They didn't want to make it easy for Great Britain to leave because if that happened, then other countries who had a beef with Europe would also say, well, okay, we're leaving too, and then the whole European Union would collapse. Europe wanted to make it hard for Great Britain to leave, to make it costly for Great Britain to leave, to sort of teach a lesson to other countries not to do it. Uh, Theresa May called an election. Uh, the um, the Labour Party did very, very well in that election, and Theresa May lost her majority, uh, but she ended up winning an election and had to stay in power with the help of the Northern Irish uh, Protestant uh, Party. Um, the Northern Ireland Protestants, they wanted to make sure that um, Northern Ireland would be as much a part of Great Britain as all the other parts of Great Britain. But there was an agreement that was signed between Ireland and Great Britain that said that there would be no border between Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland. There would be free movement of goods, free movement of people. Uh, there would be, um, uh, uh, people could go to school on either side of the border, they could get healthcare services on either side of the border, but practically speaking, Northern Ireland and Ireland would all be the same country. And, and, and they did this in order to solve the problem of, um, you know, the, the, the sort of uh, uh, Catholic uh, um, uh, the time of troubles when there was civil war going on in Northern Ireland with thousands of people being killed. So the solution of that problem was to create a sort of a, a kind of a united island of Ireland belonging to two different countries. Now that contradicts the, the principle of Great Britain getting out of the European Union, getting out of the free trade agreement. Um, and uh, how could you do that at the same time as having a united Ireland, a united Ireland, island of Ireland? This was one of the hardest sticking points in the negotiations. Um, they had to negotiate the rights of European Union citizens living in Great Britain, the rights of British people living in Europe. 
they had to negotiate the fee or the cost of the divorce uh, settlement, the payment that Great Britain would give to the European Union in order to leave. And they had to resolve the question about the Irish border and what would happen with the whole idea that I just mentioned of having a kind of a one uh, Irish island in two different countries. Um, the government's deal that they negotiated with the European Union was, was uh, defeated in the House, two different votes in the House of Commons in 2019. Um, uh, the, uh, the Irish issue was one of the biggest complications the whole idea of Great Britain wanting to stay in a sort of a common market, but not be subject to European rules uh, was another complication. Um, and uh, the other complication, minor as it sounds, was the whole fishing uh, arrangements between the European Union and Great Britain. So great as being in the European Union, Great Britain gave the right to uh, Europeans to fish in British waters, especially French fishermen um, uh, and, you know, Belgian fishermen and, uh, uh, you know, the other countries had a right to fish in very rich waters. Um, and, and sort of the British fishermen were the ones who wanted the most to get out of Europe so that they would have British waters all to themselves. Now, the fishing industry in Great Britain is two-tenths of one percent of the economy, it means that it's completely unimportant in the whole big picture. But the fishermen were a very well-organized kind of uh, lobby, and um, they wanted to get rid of the symbolic nature of having European fishermen come in British waters and steal all of Great Britain's fish. And so, um, you know, this became a big issue. The problem for the British fishermen is that all the fish that the British fishermen are catching, the vast majority of that product goes to, to Europe. Uh, the shellfish, the, the, you know, the clams, the scallops, uh, especially all those type of things go and get shipped to um, Europe. And Europe said, well, okay, but we now have to put a tariff on all British fish coming in. So in other words, the British fishermen would have the the sort of rights to have a much bigger share of uh, a fish being caught around Great Britain, but then they couldn't sell it back into Europe. And so, you know, this was a big problem. Um, the, the, the squaring of the circle of the Irish border was another problem because if Ireland and, and, and Northern Ireland are one economic zone and goods could pass from one to the other, how is that possible if Great Britain is out of the European free market uh, and Northern Ireland is in it? That would mean that customs would have to check uh, goods going from Great Britain into Northern Ireland and vice versa. And so uh, this complicated problem uh, is still one that's kind of um, has to be resolved to square the circle. So negotiations sort of got stuck. And um, uh, two years later, uh, with a deadline of uh, Europe, uh, I should say Great Britain officially left the European Union in January 2020, 
but they had sort of a one-year transition period to keep things as they were until uh, January 2021. But guess what? That's two weeks away, and there still is no uh, solid deal to resolve the remaining differences between the, the, the two parties. Um, um, and they're still talking about what to do. So if there is no agreement, uh, Great Britain will automatically leave, which has already left, uh, Great Britain would end up being a, a, a country uh, with the same relationship to the European Union as any other country. You know, in other words, as Brazil or as uh, the United States or, or any of the other countries around the world that don't have an agreement with the European Union. And this would result in tariffs um, of goods going in both directions. It would result in transportation delays because all goods had to be checked at the border or in the ports. Um, it would result in um, food becoming more expensive in Great Britain. It would result in shortages of goods like uh, even medicines coming from Europe into Great Britain. Uh, it, 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 it has already resulted in the movement of many companies from Great Britain into Europe, for example, uh, banks, um, you know, who set up in uh, Great Britain in order to service Europe. And, and, and in, you know, now that Great Britain is out of the European Union, these companies have to move to Europe in order to fulfill their, um, their sort of uh, mandate of servicing all of Europe. Uh, Honda, the Honda car company, has a big, huge factory in Great Britain, but most of the cars they make there are going to Europe. And the European Union said, we're going to put a 10% tariff on, uh, as they have now, a 10% tariff on all non-European cars coming into Europe. That 10% tariff would be, would be charged to Honda also. And so Honda was talking about moving their plant to, to Europe. Uh, you know, these are severe shocks for Great Britain to absorb and things that they didn't think about when the vote was being taken uh, to leave uh, the European Union. The people there were worried about all the refugees and all the immigrants coming into Europe. They weren't thinking about all the British companies moving out of Great Britain uh, to go uh, into Europe to be able to, you know, operate in Europe in the free zone that Europe is. Uh, without any, uh, you know, without having to pay tariffs of all of their goods going into Europe. So sort of it's a wake-up call. Um, and uh, there are polls that have been taken that saying that, you know, sort of the British people, if a, if a new referendum was held today, then um, they would vote to stay in Europe by about 57% to 43%, something like that. Another of the important and big issues, let me just check my watch for a second. Okay, I still have some time. Is the idea of Scotland and Scotland's independence. And Scotland said, you know, we voted uh, in a uh, re Scottish referendum whether to leave Great Britain and we voted 55% to stay and 45% to leave, to become independent. But we did this referendum before the referendum uh, of Great Britain um, leaving um, uh, Europe. And in the European, in the referendum uh, for 
whether to stay or to leave in Europe, Scotland voted 62% to stay and Great Britain voted 52% to leave. And so Scotland is saying, well, we didn't sign up for this. We, we voted to stay in Europe. We voted to stay in Great Britain. But if Great Britain is leaving Europe, then we want to leave Great Britain. And we want to have another referendum. And uh, Prime Minister Johnson, who succeeded Theresa May uh, after her sort of failure to uh, get um, uh, votes passed in Parliament, um, uh, Boris Johnson said, well, Scotland already had one referendum and, uh, you know, they shouldn't be able to have a second kick at the can. You know, think about Quebec, you know, Quebec voted once to stay in Canada. And after that, they said, well, we want another referendum. And they voted again to stay in Canada. And then, you know, the ones who still want to separate said, well, we want another referendum. So, um, you know, I think that Boris Johnson looking at the Quebec uh, results said, no, you have one chance. You didn't take it too bad for you. Uh, but if Scotland is, uh, you know, still insisting on leaving, it's going to be a tough uh, a tough um, uh, sort of decision of Great Britain to force Scotland to stay under what you might call sort of changed circumstances. Um, uh, now, the other point that Scotland is making is that Northern Ireland has special sort of, a, we'll call it a favored uh, deal that they could sort of be half in the European Union. And why can't Scotland have the same deal? as Northern Ireland has. And so that's another issue for that uh, uh, the British um, uh, Parliament has to deal with or that Boris Johnson has to deal with. Um, uh, it's expected that Great Britain will lose about 8% of the GDP once uh, they are out of the European free trade zone. Um, services will end up moving to uh, Frankfurt and Paris are two of the cities that are, and Amsterdam are the three cities that are going to benefit the most from Great Britain leaving the European Union. Um, uh, there already are tie-ups at the ports because so many people want to, to sort of get all the goods from Europe before the hammer goes down that the tie-up in the ports is terrible. COVID is making matters worse in this whole issue because of the slowdowns uh, in trade because of COVID. And um, uh, the Great Britain has had a very poor record uh, in dealing with COVID. It has the 63,000 deaths as the worst in Europe. And um, it's another reason the Scotland is pointing to, uh, you know, Great Britain and saying, well, you know, you've messed everything up with COVID, you've messed everything up with free trade, uh, you know, it's time for us to leave. And if a poll, if, if, if a vote was taken today, uh, the Scottish people would more than likely vote to leave uh, Great Britain than to stay. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, Brexit is also uh, in a way bad for Europe because with Great Britain in uh, the European Union. It was a wealthy, uh, moderate country. Uh, it was not a country that was sort of taking from the European Union, but rather giving to the European Union. And now that Great Britain is gone, 
the European Union loses uh, one of its biggest members. It was the second biggest economy in the world, as I said beforehand, and the third biggest population before Great Britain leaves. And so now the European Union will have to adjust to a new situation without Great Britain in it. Um, and, you know, sort of uh, Great Britain was a kind of one of the more, we'll call it economically conservative or, or uh, responsible countries, along with Germany, Holland, Sweden, Luxembourg, and Belgium, uh, a country which wanted, you know, less wasteful spending. Um, and now that, uh, you know, uh, Great Britain leaves, this sort of anchor of responsibility is going to uh, sort of, you know, uh, disappear from uh, the sort of conservative small c conservative members of the European Union. Um, students will not be able to study in Great Britain because every European wanted to be able to study in English uh, and went to universities in Great Britain. And once they graduated, they could stay and, and become citizens. And now this opportunity will be gone and Britain will lose out because of that, the research and all that kind of thing. Um, the agricultural community of Great Britain will be hurt a lot because not only will they lose markets in Europe, but they won't be able to recruit uh, Eastern Europeans to pick the vegetables and fruits that are grown there. Um, uh, the National Health Service, the NHS, uh, relies on recruits from the poorer European countries to fill uh, lower paid jobs in the hospitals and nursing aid jobs and things like that. Uh, the number of nurses coming to the UK went from 1,300 in 2016 down to 46 in 2017. Um, and, um, you know, the, uh, the, you know, uh, Great Britain says we want to establish the same sort of immigration policy as, say, Canada has to just pick and choose the better immigrants and not having, not have to take anybody who shows up. Um, and uh, so things like security and uh, uh, all of the IT and internet, uh, you know, policing and policing of terrorism and counterterrorism, all these things which before Great Britain was part of, and then sort of an air and, you know, like flights were domestic flights all over Europe, just the way you know, we have a pre-clearing of American uh, flights uh, flights to the States. Well, you know, Great Britain could fly anywhere. And now that they're out of the EU, it's going to be like a foreign flight and all the delays that that has to do. And so um, in general, Great Britain is going to be the loser in this whole affair. And it will have turned out to be a kind of a, a, kind of a mistake, I would it would be my guess to of having Great Britain move out of Europe. So I'm going to stop here uh, and see if you have questions and comments about this. Uh, you could see that there are all kinds of implications, economic implications, social implications, national type implications. Uh, the unity of Great Britain is, I would say, never uh, at more at risk than it is uh, because of this um, Brexit idea. And uh, the people who are pushing it, uh, people like Mr. Savage, uh, 
who is, you know, Donald Trump's twin in a certain sense, uh, promising everything and saying everything is going to be great with no losses. Um, these are people who sort of sold a bill of goods to the British people, and now it's the British people ending up having to pay for, uh, you know, for what they got into, you know. <clears throat> so, yeah, that's uh, a nice sort of introduction to this whole subject. And, uh, you know, without going into all the nitty gritty of all the the detailed um, trade uh, things that have to be dealt with. Um, and um, so that's that. So let me know if you have any questions or comments. So the question is by Boris and he's asking you, your opinion about Boris Johnson as a British PM and the role of the royal family in today life of UK. So uh, the royal family um, is uh, uh, by a convention that was established more or less, we'll call it, uh, well, let's say more or less after the Second World War, the royal family is not supposed to take any political um, uh, views or stance. Uh, you may know or you may not know that the royal family never votes in elections because they are supposed to be neutral in any, um, in any sort of political discussions that the country has. Uh, and so the queen um, never made her ideas or her opinions known to the general British public on the whole subject of Brexit. Um, in general, in general, the people I would say who were most supportive of the royal family were the ones who probably voted to leave um, uh, Europe in order to sort of reestablish a kind of, in some ways, a kind of um, uh, a throwback to what Great Britain was in its heyday. Uh, and of course, the supporters of the royal family tend to be older, tend to be whiter. Um, and uh, these are exactly the people who voted to leave uh, Europe and vice versa for all the other uh, people. Um, Boris Johnson was a strong supporter of Brexit. Uh, he was somebody who felt that if Great Britain were independent, it would do better than it would be as part of Europe. He felt that Great Britain and the United States could establish some sort of union or economic union or free trade agreement that Great Britain could um, get closer to Canada and Australia and New Zealand, its sort of sister or its children colonies who became independent uh, English-speaking countries. Um, even though these countries have little to little trade with Great Britain, uh, little in today in common with Great Britain, and um, you know have their own uh, problems to look after. Um, it remains to be seen what the end will be, but the sort of, uh, let's call it the economic gurus have already made up their minds. The British pound lost a huge percentage of its value once that referendum was, uh, you know, uh, the, the results were seen. The British pound has continued to lose its value. 
Um, and, um, you know, betting uh, people have made up their minds and have bet against Great Britain uh, as a result of this, of, of this um, you know, uh, action. Remember that back in the 1970s, Japan was, was kind of the third pole in the world economy. Today, China is. And, um, you know, Great Britain has an even harder job to compete around the world with China than, uh, you know, than ever before. And so being a small country of, say, 65 million people in a world of uh, seven and a half billion, when China, uh, you know, has uh, 1.3 billion, um, you know, makes it even harder for Great Britain to sort of compete as a world power both sort of physically or militarily um, and economically especially economically as we're as we're speaking uh, my my um, you know my look on this is really the danger to the Union uh, the United Kingdom and uh, the danger uh, if Scotland starts to uh, go down the path of independence uh, just the whole process of that is so, is so draining and so harmful. Um, uh, Great Britain, uh, England, I should say, England has 11 times the population of Scotland. So roughly Scotland is somewhere around five and a half million people. And England itself is somewhere around uh, 60, uh, 50, you know, 55 million. And um, uh, it's, uh, you, you know, um, kind of, it's an unequal partnership between England on the one hand and Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland on the other hand. But these nations together have, uh, since, um, you know, the 1700s, uh, been, been in one country. Ireland did secede in 1921 and left uh, a rump of Northern Ireland. <clears throat> but the Irish issue was solved, uh, you know, through terrible suffering and pain, but was solved. And, um, you know, it, it seems a shame that the Scottish independence would end up being, uh, uh, you know, another sort of test and drain on Great Britain, which was completely unnecessary had Great Britain stayed in the European Union and, um, you know, just, uh, you know, finally came to terms with its its uh, weakening of status from, you know, 1914 to 2014. And, uh, you know, those hundred years made a big difference. So Boris responded and he said, yes, thank you. Okay. I have Anybody? a question for you. Yeah, sure. Somebody, Mr. Deskin. Um, let's, uh, so we know that they want, they're going to exit the European Union, but let's say in five, 10 years, they look back and they say, oh crap, we made, we a, made mistake. a mistake. Yes, yeah. and then they wanna go back to the European Union. How do you think that might go? I, I think it would be very possible. Um, the European Union uh, would say, look, you're welcome back. Um, you know, it's like a couple that splits up and then wants to get back together. Uh, there has to be terms and conditions. Those terms and conditions would be set by um, Europe and not by Great Britain. So in a certain sense, it would be 
like you're Great Britain would be crawling back on its hands and knees to get back into the European Union. And they would have to say, we're sorry we made a mistake, because that's exactly what they are saying, or what they would be saying. Um, the uh, the um, European Union uh, sur will survive this breakup uh, because they are the stronger party, um, because they sort of have no choice in a way. Um, and, uh, you know, if they're willing to accept, uh, you know, the European Union has a kind of a list of countries that want to come into it, a kind of a waiting list of countries, uh, poorer Eastern European countries, um, you know, like Albania or Montenegro or North Macedonia, uh, countries in Eastern Europe. It may well be that uh, Ukraine and Belarus, uh, once they have their revolution, will want to come in also. And if the European Union is willing to let these countries in uh, who are poor and who need all kinds of help, why not accept Great Britain back in the European Union, which uh, you know, would be a much better deal for, the, for Europe? So it remains to be seen. It's possible for, it's a great question. And it's possible that uh, Great Britain will, will say, whoops, we made a mistake. Um, especially, I would say, if um, the Labour Party under a moderate leader, like they have now uh, Keith Starmer, if they win the next election, they could easily say, well, you know, I think we ought to have a referendum on rejoining Europe. And uh, the third biggest party the Liberal Democratic Party, that was, that's been always their uh, policy to go back to Europe, and they were uh, the strongest ones to fight against leaving Europe. And similarly, the Green Party, if the Green Party ever gets going, they say, look, uh, the uh, Europe and European environment is one, you know, we're one air and one, uh, you know, one environment, and, and, and we could work together to fight against climate change much better if we're one um, continent than if we're all separate uh, countries. So if the Green Party ever gets stronger and the Liberal Democratic Party gets stronger and if the Labour Party gets stronger, this will be uh, you know, a, a bigger incentive for Great Britain to go back. Okay, I don't see any more questions. Do you have any last words for your lecture today? Um, yeah, I mean, oh. sort of negotiations are going down to the wire. And we just don't know if this will be a kind of a hard Brexit or a soft Brexit. Uh, you know, it remains to be seen. Sometimes when you put people's feet to the fire, they end up, uh, you know, coming up with a last minute solution. So that remains to be seen. Um, I wanted to mention the other kind of big news of the week, uh, which is um, Israel and Morocco forming diplomatic relations, which is really... Uh, uh, again, a huge breakthrough for Israel. And um, I might end up speaking about uh, Morocco as a country, maybe for half a class for next week. Um, you know, I always look and see what happens during the week to figure out a subject, but that may well be a subject for next week. So I hope you're interested. Um, I myself... Uh, made a wonderful three-week visit to Morocco and had a wonderfully educational experience. Um, so I might speak about that. Uh, we'll just have to see. I want to wish everybody a good week, a safe week.
And, uh, you know, needless to say, um, you know, the vaccinations have started. So uh, let's keep on going. Thank you very much, everyone.